From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. As the war in Ukraine continues, the information behind the conflict continues to change rapidly. Well, this week we're joined by Mark Hansian. He's a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank based in Washington, D.C. This week, he's helping us understand some of the crucial logistics and reasoning behind the war. We'll also hear from his daughter, Caroline, who gives us her take on the war and her father's work. It's Wednesday, May 18th, and this is News Nerds. As the information on the war in Ukraine continues to change rapidly, we're joined by somebody who's been investing a lot of their time talking, writing, and researching this subject. It's Mark Kansian, a senior advisor at the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I recorded my interview with Mark last Saturday. So you're a retired Marine Corps colonel. Uh, Tell me more about your background. Uh, Sure. Um, I uh, went to college after I graduated from high school. Uh, After college, I decided to go into the military. I was a little tired of writing 20-page papers and decided that I would uh, have some adventures, serve my country, and uh, see the world. And so I did. I went uh, into the uh, Marine Corps. I did a tour overseas. Uh, was at the evacuation of Saigon. Uh, after that, I went back actually to Okinawa, you know, went to Okinawa. And as an aside, you know, one evening, a group of Marine lieutenants broke into the officers club pool with a group of army nurses. And uh, I started chatting with one of the army nurses. Um, one thing led to another and we were married for 40 years. Uh, so mom was a retired army nurse. Um, after that, I um, went to graduate school. The Marine Corps sent me to graduate school, which was a great deal. And then as my payback tour, I went down to Washington, worked in the Pentagon and at Marine Corps headquarters. I decided that I liked working on national security issues and left active duty. I stayed in the reserves, went, ran research programs, executive programs up at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And uh, after that, I went back to Washington, worked in the Pentagon, uh, and at the Office of Management Budget and various uh, senior positions working on force structure and acquisition issues. I also stayed in reserves and was called up for Desert Storm and then did two tours in Iraq. Uh, after the second tour, my wife said, you know, this is time for you to turn this over to a younger generation. So I retired the second time. And uh, then six years ago, I joined the think tank, the Center for Strategic International Studies. I'd always done a lot of writing and decided to be um, interesting to take an opportunity to write about subjects in a way that you you can't really do when you're in the government. There are a lot of restrictions. So uh, six years at the think tank, and it's been a wonderful experience. You're an intellectual entrepreneur. You get to write a lot on a variety of subjects. Last summer, I finished a project on NATO expansion. That project looked at what it would take to defend prospective NATO members like Ukraine. So did analysis of Ukraine and what it would take to uh, defend that. Also, I'd written extensively about military forces and operations. So that came together. And when the war in uh, Ukraine, when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, started, I wrote uh, a number of commentaries on that. I've done a lot of engagement with uh, journalists and TV. So 
taken a, a big chunk of my time uh, commenting on uh, Ukraine, but it's an important issue. Uh, I wrote, in particular, I wrote a piece about javelins. I did some calculations noting that about a third of the stockpile had probably been sent to Ukraine and that that was going to cause problems because the United States needed javelins for some of its other war plans. Uh, that got picked up by a lot of uh, media. Uh, so I became Mr. Javelin. So every time a journalist had a question about javelin, they would give me a call. So I uh, did a lot of work on javelins. Now, I feel like uh, lots of people weren't expecting something like the large-scale uh, military response that Russia has imposed on Ukraine. Uh, and now, of course, it's been several months since uh, late February when this started. But as somebody who spends a lot of their time thinking about these kind of issues, uh, were you expecting something like this? The short answer is no. Most commentators first had a hard time believing that there would be a war in Europe. You know, there hasn't been a major war in Europe since the Second World War, and there were some smaller regional conflicts in the Balkans, of course, in the 1990s and into the 2000s. Uh, but it was just hard to believe that one country would invade another. Uh, so, so the short answer is no, people were not expecting that. Now, you know, on the flip side, you know, looking back on it, you can see that Putin had been talking about this sort of thing since he took power in 2000. He has lamented the breakup of the Soviet empire and had vowed to rebuild that. So his attack on Ukraine in that respect is not surprising, but that he would do it by uh, invasion is a surprise that most people believe that he would use you know, uh, gray area kinds of attacks, you know, something below the level of a conventional invasion, using cyber, using information operations, using subversion and that sort of thing, uh, not a direct attack. So uh, when Russia provoked this war, they were looking at this conflict as a special military operation, kind of a short-term uh, conflict where they could quite possibly install a puppet into Ukraine's political system that shared the same values as Russian leaders. and. As we've seen, this, that, had not been, that has not been the case. This has been a long, drawn-out conflict. I'm wondering, why has Russia's original ambitions been so unsuccessful? Well, you know, that's a, it's a great question, and uh, a lot of debate in the national security community about why that has happened. <clears throat> Let me go back and say that most observers expected the Russian military to do a lot better than it has. The Russians had invaded the country of Georgia in 2008. They won, but they won ugly. They instituted a wide variety of reforms after that war. They slimmed down the officer corps. They eliminated unneeded headquarters. They instituted a lot more training. They put more money into the military, bought more equipment. They uh, did quite well. Their operations were quite effective when they invaded Crimea in 2014. That invasion was almost uh, bloodless. Uh, they were also quite successful in Syria during the years that they have been involved in the Syrian civil war. Now their operations were brutal, uh, but they seemed to be quite effective uh, using mostly air power and special forces. So when this war kicked off, most observers were thinking that the Russians would be uh, much more uh, competent, much more effective than they uh, turned out to be. Uh, the other thing is, of course, the Ukrainians have turned out to be much more 
resilient than people expected. Before the war, the Ukrainians had been very divided. When you polled them, there was a lot of dissatisfaction. They thought the government was ineffective and corrupt because you had a split between the Russian speakers and the Ukrainian speakers, the Russian speakers being mostly in the East. Uh, but the war uh, brought them together and they seemed to be quite uh, unified and determined to defend their country. Um, and a third thing is Zelensky. Before the war, Zelensky's popularity was very, I think his you know, ratings were down in the 20s. Uh, remember, he had no background in any of these kinds of uh, activities. He had been an actor and a comedian. He had never been a politician, never held any political office. He had never been in the military. He had never run any large organization. And when you compare him to another wartime leader like Winston Churchill, uh, you know, Winston Churchill uh, had been in the military. He had uh, you know, fought uh, in the empire. He had been a senior member of government. He had been what was essentially the secretary of the Navy, uh, the first Lord of the Admiralty in the First World War. He had written extensively about political military affairs, uh, both as a journalist and had written several books analyzing politics in the military. Um, and, and then, before the Second World War had uh, <clears throat> come back into the government. So he's the kind of person you would expect, you know, might make a great wartime leader. And of course he did, you know, uh, you know during the, the darkest days of the uh, Battle of Britain. But Zelensky turns out also to have been a great wartime leader, despite having none of those qualifications. You know, he has been steadfast. He has inspired his people. He has been very aggressive in uh, uh, soliciting uh, diplomatic and military support for the country. Uh, so that was quite unexpected uh, also. To get back to your original question, though, about did the Russians expect to win a quick victory and what happened? Well, we talked a little about why they didn't. But the short answer is, yes, they did. I mean, they instituted a concept of operations that clearly anticipated overthrowing the government in uh, a couple of days, that they would make a quick thrust on Kiev. They would attack from various other directions. They would launch um, missile attacks and the combination, the shock and awe, as uh, people talk about, would cause the collapse of uh, Ukraine. And to be fair, the Russians, they came fairly close in the sense that, you know, there was a moment when the United States offered Zelensky a helicopter right out of the city. He refused and, uh, you, know, you know, the Ukrainians coalesced. But, you know, there were a couple of days when it was really uh, could have gone either way. The United States has been putting millions and billions of dollars into the war efforts in Ukraine. New bills have been passing through Congress, and more and more has been uh, put aside for the war efforts. Um, although we're not directly on the ground in Ukraine fighting, I'm wondering how much has the United States funded the war and the Ukrainians' success in defending their country? Well, there's no question that the support provided by the United States and other countries, NATO and others, has been critical in, in allowing the Ukrainians to um, maintain their forces in the field. Militaries in combat require a continuous flow of munitions and supplies. Without those, the Ukrainians would have lasted only a couple of weeks. The supplies and munitions we've been sending have been critical in allowing them to um, you know, keep their forces in the field and also to 
arm these new militias that they recruited at the beginning of the war, which are, I think, now have come on online. So the support has been critical. Now, having said that, you know, the, uh, the, the most critical element is the ability of the Ukrainians themselves and their desire to defend their country. One of the things the United States has learned to its regret is that you can provide a lot of training and equipment to foreign militaries, but if the will to fight isn't there, uh, then it will be uh, uh, an exercise in frustration. We saw that in Afghanistan and also uh, in Iraq. An interesting thing about the military aid is that it's been increasing. At the beginning of the war, it was running about $50 million a day. A couple of weeks ago, the United States bumped that up to about $100 million a day. This new aid package takes it up to about 150-ish million dollars a day. The other thing about the, the package, too, is it goes out much longer. The previous packages had been aimed at keeping the Ukrainians supplied for a week or two or three, maybe, and we had a succession of aid packages. This one goes out to the end of the U.S. fiscal year, which is September 30th, so it's looking out five months. And that's a statement by the United States and the Ukrainians that this war could go on for quite a while. So if this war will go on for a long period of time, what will the strategy from both the Ukrainians and the Russians look like as this kind of uh, plays out as more of a long-term conflict than just a short uh, military operation, as the Russian military was calling it? Yeah. Um, this is a matter that's being debated in the national security community. The <clears throat> Russians seem to be planning on a long war. That's the assessment of the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, in the May 9th victory parade, Putin didn't signal any escalation of the war, but it didn't signal any de-escalation either. So the speculation is that the Russians are going to keep doing what they're doing. Uh, the uh, Ukrainians, on the other hand, uh, seem to have a strategy of counterattacking on the periphery. They've been building their forces, and of course these forces have been gaining experience in training. These militias, as we talked about, that were created at the beginning of the war are now in the field and relatively skilled, and they get more skilled all the time. We've also sending uh, you know, uh, weapon systems. We can talk about, about that. These are Western weapon systems. Uh, and the Ukrainians have been conducting counterattacks, I say on the, on the periphery, of course, up north by um, Kharkiv. They uh, have had a series of local counterattacks that are arguably expanding to a counteroffensive. They've pushed the Russians back from Kharkiv, so the city is not being hit by as much artillery as it was before. It's now very only occasional, and the Russians seem to be continuing to uh, retreat. And then in the southwest, around uh, on the road to Odessa. Ukrainians are also counterattacking. Now, those are a little more sporadic uh, around Mikolaev, uh, but again, they're pushing the Russians back. The Russian fundamental problem you have to keep in mind is that they just don't have very many troops. We have this image, or many people have the image of you know, the, the Russian war machine, you know, this huge army, and when they talked about the Russian steamroller, uh, and it's true that during the Soviet years, the Russian military was running about three and a half million, uh, the Soviet military. You know, the Russian military is only about 900,000 in total, uh, with the army maybe 280,000. By comparison, the United States is 1.3 million for active duty, and we have a pretty good reserve component, which is another 800,000. 
Russian reserve component is not nearly as well trained or organized. So it's a small military. As, as I've told many journalists, this is not the Soviet army that marched to victory over the bodies of its dead. You know, this is a small military, very sensitive to casualties. Uh, they really don't have enough infantry for what they're trying to do. So they don't have the forces to be strong everywhere. They've decided to concentrate those forces uh, in the east as a result of forces around Kharkiv and in the uh, southwest uh, around Nikolaev are, are just not strong enough. Uh, so, uh, and this is going to be a problem, I think, continuing uh, as the Russians try to nibble away in the east and the Donbass, but they just don't have enough forces to defend everywhere. One thing that caught my attention is that there's kind of a contrast between the technologies of the United States' weapons that they're sending to Ukraine and then those of the European allies and those that might be from the Soviet era. How are those uh, differing technologies posing challenges and is the Ukrainian military adapting well to those changes? The short answer is no and yes. Let me explain. Uh, early on, we sent weapons like Javelin, like Stinger, uh, and many others that you know, haven't quite got as much attention. And law which is another kind of anti-tank weapon. The Germans sent Panzerfaust III s. Um, the Swedes sent the Karl Gustav recoilless rifle, uh, and a variety of other uh, weapons. These are all th uh, weapons that are relatively easy to learn how to use. The, the Ukrainians had some javelins already, so they had some sense about how to use them. Stingers, uh, you know, we had given to the Mujahideen in the, two, in the 1980s. Uh, most of them were illiterate, uh, but we were able to teach them how to use them effectively because all of the, uh, the complexities com contained in the munition itself, uh, the operator doesn't have to do things that are very complicated. Uh, later on, we sent them equipment that they already had. And we scrounged around our NATO allies and really around the world to find T-72 tanks, S-300 uh, air defense systems. Uh, we probably sent them some aircraft. Certainly we sent them some uh, helicopters. Uh, these were systems that they already had. So in a sense, we were sending them replacements. And, and it was very easy for them to assimilate them because you know, they already uh, were accustomed to using them, even if the systems that they were receiving from abroad might be slightly different models uh, from what they were uh, used to. What's been a change recently is that we're starting to send major weapons from the United States and other countries. The United States is sending uh, armored personnel carriers. The Germans are sending their anti-aircraft tanks. The uh, French are sending Caesar artillery. We're also sending, the United States is also sending towed artillery. It's in system called the M777. The Brits are sending some things. Uh, the, these are new in the sense that these are systems that the, the Ukrainians have not used before. So they, there's a, uh, a training time that's involved both for operators and especially for maintainers. I think that's going to be very difficult. Um, I'll come back to that. But one of the great advantages of using these NATO systems is that they use NATO standard uh, munitions rather than Soviet standard. And when you look at the artillery, for example, Ukrainians have been using the Soviet standard uh, 122 millimeter, 152 millimeter. Uh, those are perfectly good artillery weapons. The Russians were very good at uh, artillery. It still are, you, we're seeing that uh, in Ukraine now. 
uh, but it's very difficult to get ammunition and artillery in combat goes through a huge amount of ammunition. They might fire as much ammunition in a week as they would in a year of peacetime operations. The um, equipment we're sending now is on the, for the artillery is the NATO standard 155 millimeter. It's about a six inch. Um, and there are you know, a dozen countries that make uh, NATO standard ammunition. So it's very easy to get a hold of it. And also, there's also a broader portfolio of projectiles that are available, including um, precision munitions. So for both of those reasons, the availability of ammunition and the uh, availability of different kinds of projectiles, including uh, guided, is driving this, this push, you know, this, this new phase of uh, supplies that include uh, major weapon systems. The challenge, though, is going to be maintaining and operating these new systems. Now, the United States and NATO have set up training programs in Europe. The idea is that Ukrainians will come and learn the systems, then go back and train the operators. It's called train the trainers. Personally, I don't think that's going to work very well. Train the trainers is hard to do in the best of circumstances. This isn't the best of circumstances. Uh, we're asking Ukrainian units to give up their best people uh, to come to Europe for a couple of weeks to learn how to use these systems. Um, I think it's just, I think it's going to be very difficult. My personal opinion is that to make this work, we're going to have to send uh, contractors into Ukraine to help uh, maintain these systems. Something that has occurred to me during this war is that this is not the only conflict in our world today, that there's other conflicts whether they're in Africa or the Middle East or, you know, other places, but they might just not have gotten the attention that this one's getting, whether that's because uh, this war is in Ukraine, it's in, it's in Europe, it's just so close to home, and something like this has not happened in Europe for a very long time. What has the response to international conflicts been uh, compared to the one in Ukraine right now? Um, the, certainly, I... You know, I think there's some truth to the fact that because this is in Europe uh, and close to many of our European allies, it's getting a lot more attention. But the fact that it's close to NATO and countries, the United States is uh, committed to defend, and that is that we might be involved, uh, I, I think is, you know, driving a lot of the um, attention. Uh, you know, when I think back, for example, in the 1980s, to the Iran-Iraq war. And that got a fair amount of attention in the West, but because you know, it wasn't threatening either the United States directly or any country that we were obligated to defend, you know, it didn't get quite as much of attention. But because you know, there's been some sense about uh, the United States having to get involved, you know, that's made it much more immediate. This, I think it's also, a social media effect going on and the fact that there's so much sharing of social media, people are seeing what a war looks like. Uh, you know, I think that has encouraged people to think that this war is particularly brutal. And I keep telling journalists, no, you know, this is just what war looks like. Uh, it's, you know, this war is not particularly brutal. Uh, it's just a war. And, you know, when asked, you know, what well, could it get any worse? I say, yeah, you know, imagine instead of one Mariupol, you've got, three or four going on as, uh, you know, forces uh, conduct broader um, you know, operations. So, so I, I mean, yes, there is a little uh, uh, special attention because it's Europe, but I think that the fact that 
the United States might get directly involved has driven a lot of that and the social media. Well, do you think that the U.S. will become directly involved in this war, or do you think that this will play out as a war funded by uh, America but fought by Ukrainians? I think we're going to be in the latter situation. You know, the president has been emphatic that we are not sending uh, U.S. or NATO troops into Ukraine, and that seems to be Russia's red line. You know, both sides have drawn red lines. Russia has, of course, rattled its nuclear saber and been a lot of attention to that but but the red line the thing that might drive them to use nuclear weapons would would be u.s and nato forces in ukraine itself and for the other uh, activities that we're conducting sending all of this equipment for example um, you know they complain they've tried to do some interdiction in ukraine not very successfully uh, you know but they have not threatened to use uh, nuclear weapons or escalation And conversely, the United States and NATO have, have made their red line. Their red line is no strikes on NATO territory. So even though all of this equipment is flowing through NATO countries, uh, Poland particularly, uh, the Russians have refrained from making those direct attacks. That's our red line. So because both sides have drawn these red lines, I think that the chances of U.S. service members, U.S. military being directly involved are very, very small. Uh, you know, despite all the you know, desires, you know, particularly humanitarian, uh, to intervene and maybe uh, reduce some of this suffering. On the other hand, I think we're going to see more and more of what we already see, and that is the provision of supplies and training to Ukrainians. Putin complains that this is a proxy war, and he's absolutely right. This is a proxy war between Russia and the United States, you know, and the, the proxy uh, in our case is uh, Ukraine. It's possible you might see some escalation, and I described the possible use of contractors in Ukraine. Uh, I think that would likely, if there were an escalation, I think that would likely be it, you know, um, because contractors are not U.S. military, uh, and you could construct the uh, activities as Ukrainian-driven. You know, the Ukrainians could put together some Ukrainian military uh, maintenance company, you know, and have them hire uh, contractors from the West to help them with their equipment. And uh, although, you know, that would be an escalation because you would now have Westerners in Ukraine helping with the war effort. Uh, I don't think that, I don't think that Russia would, would react. Um, and, you know, and that might help the Ukrainians, but that's the only escalation I could see. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for your insight. I know that your daughter Caroline is here, and I would love to hear what it's like to be your daughter and what it means to be in a military family. Okay, here she comes. Hi. Hi. Do you have the war on your mind a lot? Um, I know this is a big issue, but I also know that a lot of teenagers don't uh, talk about this a lot. So are you thinking about this a lot? So, yeah, I mean, with my dad being, this is like his 20 minutes of fame, as he likes to call it, I get a lot of information that I feel like a lot of teenagers my age and like don't really understand. And I mean, it's kind of scary if you like really think about it, like the outcomes of this situation. But I mean, overall, I think. Ukraine will hopefully pull out. 
strong. So. Well, are a lot of people that you talk to, your friends, are they talking about this? Uh, and do you talk about this? So, I mean, we talk about it some. I don't think it's like the main topic, although it is sort of a big deal. Well, uh, before this conflict, what did you know about what your father did and how did that affect you? So, I mean, before, I mean, I kind of had some like idea, but I didn't realize that like this war could like be a big deal for him and his career. But I mean, I'm really proud of him, what he's done, so. Well, it's been great to meet you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us on the show. That was Mark Kansian, a senior advisor at the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We were also joined by his daughter, Caroline, who talked about being in a military family, along with her take on the war in Ukraine as a teenager. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. I was your host, Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other extras. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Another option is to listen to us every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM 95.9 FM, Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you're not in the Gallatin Valley, you can go to their website, kgvm.org, to listen. Please support us through our Patreon and PayPal accounts. That's how we support this show, through donations from you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.